Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and whatever you're going through. My name's Jez and it's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us for this, another long-form conversation. And in today's episode, I'm super excited to bring you a conversation I had with the incredible Andy McCulloch. Andy is known to many of us in the New Frontiers family of churches. Currently based in Reading Family Church, he's been involved in planting churches and coaching church planters. He's also an avid student of language, culture and mission as well as the Bible and is the author of the outstanding book Global Humility about attitudes for mission, which is well worth a read if you haven't read it. But for today's conversation, we focused, amongst other things, on his passion for for mission among the unreached, but also on the need of the West to learn from the rest. And his latest book released last year, The Bethlehem Story, which, oh my goodness, if you haven't read this or got this, you've got to go get this book. It's so refreshing and so inspiring and encouraging as it traces a biblical a biblical theology overview of the theme of Bethlehem, the theme of the outsider, the theme of women and of the marginalized people and how God uses them and speaks to and through them to critique um, the center, to bless the world and to bring about the good news ultimately in Jesus. So it's a really worth a read and we talk a lot more about it in the episode that follows. For now, let me hand you over to Andy as he stirs some of our faith with some amazing encouragement of what God is doing around the world and in many of the churches that we're involved with together. I hope you enjoy it. God bless. Yes, thanks for inviting me. Really nice to be here. Nice to see you again. It's so good to have you with us, Andy. Um, Why don't we start by just talking a bit about international mission in general. Um, I understand you, you know, you're from Cyprus originally, you've traveled around a fair amount as a youngster. Um, Growing up, this helped kind of shape and inform your sense and your map of meaning, map of understanding the world as a cross-cultural international place, that sort of thing? Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, you know, some people, if you ask them where they're from, it's easy for them to answer. For other people, it's a bit more complicated. And I think, um, I'm definitely the latter, uh, and in a way that really helps you in thinking you can belong in different places, and you've got different parts of the world in your heart that you go to and feel like home. Um, and so that's that's definitely been true for me. And then I'm married cross-culturally as well, just from South Africa. Uh, we lived for many years in Turkey with our kids, so it is very, um, uh, you know, what you might call hybrid in terms of our sense of who we are and where we belong, um, which certainly for, for cross-cultural awareness and mission is, is, is a plus, I would say. Would you mind if I um, just ask about that experience in general and what that does to someone, that sense of um, going home, um, where you feel you're from, rootedness in the world. Uh, it was only the other day I was talking to someone who's from South Africa, who's been in the UK for 20 years, and yet he said he recently went back to South Africa, where he, where he calls home, although he's lived there 20 years. And he went back to South Africa um, in part because he felt he needed to. Like there's a, it's a p- core part of his kind of refreshment for being uh, and being grounded afresh, a sense in the world. Um, is, that, is that a common experience for people who who are living in a second country or culture to the one that they were raised in. Um, can you speak into that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think, it, you know, again, 
it's different for different people because some people live in the place where they grew up, but a lot of the world doesn't. A lot of the world uh, lives with a sense of dislocation or, uh, you know, a kind of migratory journey. So my my granddad and my dad and me were all born in different countries from each other. My granddad, my dad and me all got married in different places than we got born in. Um, and so it is a it is a complex thing, I think. And uh, you've got different ways of belonging in different places. Um, so this year I went and spent some time in Cyprus um, just on my own for a few days. And in lots of ways that does feel like going, you know, going home using Greek again, um, just connecting with some old places and some old people. Uh, but at the same time, we live now in the UK as a family. Um, and this, you know, very much at the moment with our teenagers, this is home. So I, I think it is, it's a complex thing. And it's important to think of that because for a lot of people in our world, a lot of people in our churches, it's, it's not a straightforward thing, even to answer, where are you from? Um, you know, people's uh, first generation, second generation, third generation movement of people you still feel dislocated even at that remove and so I, th I think it's a huge part of but you know wonderfully and we'll come on to it wonderfully that's part of Jesus's story isn't it he, you know he uh, as soon as he was born he was dislocated from his home place he, uh, he was a stateless person for a while down in Egypt and so he had there's an identification and there's a solidarity with the huge numbers of people in our world that feel like that Um, yeah, I asked. I kind of mentioned it because I think there's a, there's a need, perhaps particularly for um, for pastors, for you know, British pastors who've lived here our whole lives, to understand the uh, the complexities and the heart craving for many of our international or immigrant families in our churches to to go home, and that that's not a bad feeling, but to access how people feel about their their sense of belonging in the world is really important, I think, to understand that, to serve people well. Um, what is, uh, just on that, what is, what is some advice you'd give to pastors to help them um, understand and appreciate the, the need, that, or the, the challenge and experience of living cross-culturally for people in our churches? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think the answer to a question like that must always start with listening. So lots of time listening to people's stories you know eating food with people which is you know what pastors do but uh, pastors also like talking don't they and i think um uh, you know actually directly asking people those kind of questions with a with a humble desire to understand you know what does it feel like you where do you, do you feel at home here do you feel at home there uh, and understanding that they will be complicated answers and everybody's answer and sense of home will be slightly different I think it's really important for pastors to listen because it's a deep thing in people. And if you're pastoring and preaching and serving people, you want to, you know, deep calls to deep. You want to connect with the things that really matter to people. So I think listening is huge. Um, I think also, you know, exposing yourselves to uh, voices that are not like yours. So in what you read and, you know, I've been saying this for years, but I'll keep saying it, you know, read books written by people that don't look like you, listen to podcasts and preaching and stuff from people that don't look like, get, get outside of your limited frame of reference uh, uh, 
And I, I just think that helps to expand your empathy, your view of the world. Um, and I think particularly in Britain, because it's quite a small island really globally. And so, you know, small islands have their own way of uh, thinking about the world, but the world's a big, big place. Um, and so I think that's really important. Um, and I also think uh, we talk about the church's family. If people are living far away from their family, then that becomes even more important, you know, so that all the things of hospitality and friendship and time, not just meetings, not just Sundays, all of that, you know, like genuine family is what people need when they feel um, dislocated from where they've come from. And so I think kind of growing an understanding of what does it mean to be genuinely family to people is huge. That's really helpful. Great, great answer. And actually a lot of the, what we're talking about already is a great introduction to um, your book as we're going to come on to. But before, before we get there, I'd love to just, you know, one of the things I love when I hear you preach is your, your ability to inspire faith and vision and lift people's heads for what God's doing around the world. Because as you said, we live, Britain is a small island and maybe the nature of living on a small island is we think that we're the centre of the world because, you know, we're cut off from everything else. So we seem to think we're more important than we are. So actually when you hear about what God's doing in the majority world, it's very inspiring, humbling, and it helps us get a good sense of perspective. So can you share with us just a, a few things recently that you've uh, heard of or become aware of or seen God do in some of the countries you're working? Uh, yeah, sure. So we mostly work sort of Eastern Mediterranean, Middle East, Central Asia. Um, uh, in June this year, we were traveling to a city in Central Asia um, where we've got a few connections and we've got some families that want to move there. Um, and we met there a friend of a friend who's a lady who's a local believer, so Muslim background, local believer in this Muslim nation, 72 years old, and she's an itinerant evangelist. And she's basically come to faith on her own, had no external sort of Christian input into her life over the years. Um, and so she reads her Bible and does what it says. So it says, go through all the villages and preach. So that's what she's been doing, right? So we were sitting in her house for hours and she's giving us food and she's telling us stories. And I mean, some of it is just jazz. It's just like, you're sitting there thinking, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> so. 70, 72-year-old lady, and for three decades, she's just been, like, waking up, feeling the Holy Spirit, tell her to go to a certain village, go in there. Um, you know, she'd say things like she'd go to a village, share the gospel, see one person come to faith, go back six months later, and there'd be a house church of 40 people there who've all just come to faith through that. But So repeatedly telling stories like that. But she told us one extraordinary um, and almost unbelievable story. And it's one of those that it messes with your brain a little bit. And that's the kind of stories I like, right? Like it's, it's got a life of its own. And so I'll tell it with no commentary. I'll tell it just how she told it to us. Um, and you could do with it what you want. <laughs> Is that okay? <laughs> um, she said, uh, she went to one village in the mountains and uh, there's a bunch of women invited her into a home and said, will you come and pray for our young man? He's, he had a stroke, he's been paralyzed and he's in bed for two years. So he's been in bed for two years, young man. And not only can he not move, his tongue is also paralyzed, so he can't speak. So he's not spoken for two years. They said, will you pray for him? So she just walked in and said, Lord, please, will you do something amazing here in the room? And then she leaves the room. And um, uh, six months later, she comes through the region and, and visits. 
and the women say, oh yeah, the young man that you prayed for, he's obviously got better and he's absolutely fine. And she's like, oh really, can I meet him? Can I hear his story? So she sits down and says, what happened to you? And he said, well, this is what happened. I um, you, you walked into the room and said, Lord, please, will you do something amazing here? And then you left. And after you left, through the same door came two men dressed in white who I'd never seen before. And one stood at the head of my bed and one stood at the foot of my bed and they had an argument with each other about me. And the one at the head of my bed said, the Lord has decreed that this young man should live and serve him. And the one at the foot of my bed said, no, he's a sinner and he deserves to die. And so they were arguing about me. And he said, I was lying there thinking, I like what he's saying. I don't like what he's saying. Um, and then finally, the, the, the one at the head of my bed, so man dressed in white who I've never seen before, says in an authoritative voice, no, the Lord has decreed that he should live and serve him and walks out of the room. And the one at the foot of my bed muttered, oh, we'll see about that then. <laughs> Walked out, right? He said, at that moment, I realized that I needed the toilet. I could feel a tingling. So I jumped out of bed and went to the toilet. And the people in the house heard me moving around and came running. And they were like, you, you've jumped out of bed. You're running. And I said, yeah, yeah, I needed the toilet. So I went. And then they said, oh, you're talking as well. Wow, it's a miracle. So he tells her this story. And she says to him, OK, what I feel is that the Lord has um, uh, raised you up for a purpose. You Don't waste your life now. You need to read your Bible, you need to pray, and you need to tell people what the Lord has done for you. And he said, yes, of course. And she said, for the next year, whenever she visited that house, she would check in on him and say, are you reading your Bible? Yeah. Are you praying? Yeah. Are you telling people what the Lord has done for you? Yeah. Good. Keep going. Keep going. And she said, after a year had passed, she, she visits that house and she finds him sitting on the sofa, eating snacks and watching TV. And she said, that's what she said to him. She said, so I said to him, are you reading your Bible? He said, no. Are you praying? He said, no. Are you telling people what the Lord has done for you? He said, no. She said, well, then from this point on, I'm not responsible for what will happen in your life. And she walked out of the room and within a month he was dead. Wow. <laughs> so I said, I said, I'll tell you the story exactly as she told it to us in June, sitting in her house with no commentary. That's what she told us. Do you often come across stories like that that leave you scratching your head and revisiting your theology? Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, God is a lot bigger than our theology, right? Um, and the world is big and there are extraordinary things that happen in the name of Jesus. And I think if you were finding stories that didn't, like if you weren't regularly having your box blown, that would be a really sad place to live. <laughs> wow yeah i mean that's a, a terrifying phenomenal confusing inspiring story and sobering but then like you said selling it without commentary in doing so you're like you're like the authors of the bible <laughs> i'm just going to tell you what happened here um, and not comment on whether this is good or bad this is just what they did um i, I do think it's important to you know i have the privilege of traveling places not everyone does uh, meet a lot of people hear stories I think it's important to share between places things you hear things you see God do um, and, and I think sometimes where we fall down is we then do the interpretation or application or commentary on it and I think why not just hand on the story that I heard and um, 
people can do what they want with it. <laughs> it's not my it's not my responsibility, you know. Tell us another one, Andy. Let's have story time with Andy. Another one. Okay, this one is um. Uh, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? We've got, we've, the places that God chooses to work. Um, so this comes out of um, a, a refugee context and um, some friends of ours in a city in the Middle East meet um, a woman in a Bible study context. And they say, it's the first time she's come to this Bible study. She's an older Muslim woman. And they say, oh, today we really felt that we should do the story from Luke 15 of the Good Shepherd. And they read the story of the sheep that, that goes off and the shepherd gets it and puts it on his shoulders and carries it back. And she says, stop, 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 stop. That's amazing. This is my story. This is my story. I've met that shepherd. And they said, what, what, what do you mean? Hang on, pause the Bible study. What do you mean? Tell us your story. And she said, Exactly one week ago, I was leaving my country. Finally, we paid the people smuggler. Um, they'd driven us in the truck out of the city to the border. And we had to cross during the night. We had to walk over the mountains and over the border to the other side. And the people smuggler took one look at me, an old lady with my cane, with my walking stick. And he said, I'm sorry, you're not going to make it over. You're going to slow us all down. You're not going to make it over the mountains. It's difficult going. Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to have to leave you behind. And she was like, can't. I've given you all my money. I've left everyone behind. I've got nothing in the world. Please, please, you've got to, you've got to take me. And he's like, it's a hard road over the mountains all night long, you know, through the border. We can't take you. I'm sorry. And then she said, a young man who I hadn't noticed before stepped towards me and said to me, don't worry, auntie, um, I'll carry you. And he put me on his shoulders. And all night long with the group, he carried me over the mountains and down to the other side. And in the morning on his shoulders and in the morning, uh, when we got to the other side uh, and we were going our separate ways, I said, I said to him, young man, thank you so much. Um, how do I thank you? How do I find you again? Uh, and he said, don't worry, you don't need to find me. In exactly one week's time, my followers will find you and will give you a gift. And she was like, what, what does he mean, my followers? I, that doesn't make any sense. And then she said to him, okay, sure, but I need to, what's your name? At least tell me your name. And he said to her, my name is Isa, which is a an Arabic name that is fairly common, uh, but it means Jesus. It's how you translate Jesus. He said to her, my name is Isa. And so she said, I'm sitting here. It's exactly a week later. He said, his followers were going to find me and give me a gift. What's the gift you want to give me? I mean, we could just talk about talk about the Lord's compassion and, and love for um, it's yeah it's beautiful and certainly worth a lot of pausing and reflecting on the nature of Jesus to to treat a vulnerable old woman like that and also on the value of his people that he knows us he knows who we are and what we do and is 
committed to using his people, partnering with his people in doing a great work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you, you often find in the, in, the, in the tougher places, in the rougher places, in the more marginal places, the good stories are gooder, but also the bad stories are badder, you know? Um, and I think there just is something about that reality. So a lot of our, you know, a lot of our people that we know that we serve, connect with in that part of the world also have really tough stories to tell, really painful stories to tell. Um, and so you've got to be careful not to sensationalise. Do you see what I mean? The, the, the context, I think the reality is, in, yeah, in tougher places and in more unreached places, the good stories are gooder and the bad stories are badder. And that's kind of what people sign up for. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, that's very helpful. The, the, with, the bad, with the bad stories being badder, so just as much as those good stories may inspire and provoke new levels of faith and devotion, do you find personally sitting around and hearing the, the bad stories what, what does that do to your understanding of god's work in the world as well yeah i i think it's like if you think of landscapes there's kind of flatter landscapes where everything might be a bit more predictable or consistent and then there's mountainous landscapes and what you get is you get both you get the high mountains and you get the low valleys um and I think in marginal places or unreached places, you have that extremity of spiritual landscape for people. Um, and, and I think um, there's a beauty to it, you know, both the contrast, there's a richness, there's a fullness of life. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of pain. You know, if you read any missionary story, right? any missionary biography there's huge amounts inordinate amounts of suffering and sometimes you go why is that and i think there are there are there are loads of reasons um i think sometimes it's just the the, the, the practicalities of you know, when you live in another country things are harder and that's exacerbated you know so people get sick because the diseases there are different and their body doesn't have the protection or um people get persecuted because they're an outsider and the people there don't like them so I think there are kind of natural things if you like but I think there are also supernatural things in terms of the, the spiritual warfare aspects of working in a harder place or a less reached place I think that they would don't want people there um, I think it it would be wrong to say it forges in everybody a godliness or an endurance or a perseverance um, because that's not the reality and a lot of people and we've seen it particularly through COVID there's been a lot of people working cross-culturally even within our family of churches who during COVID it's become too much and they've ended up returning to their sending country and that's an you know that's family pressures it's ill health it's isolation it's bitterness and pain and not being able to deal with the trauma of some of the things that people have been through. Um, and so I think there is a, there is a reality um, that pain doesn't always produce the, you know, all the lovely one Peter stuff that it talks about. Uh, but obviously that is um, part of that's identification with the people you're serving who are also going through painful and traumatic 
experiences as well. And you, you we always say, you know, I, I personally, I'd never trust a skinny chef, right? Um, uh, but in the same way, I wouldn't trust a, a, a general with no scars. And I wouldn't trust someone telling me good news unless they looked like they um, had known what bad news was, if that makes sense. That's very, very insightful. And actually a real challenge to um, how many of us have grown up seeing the gospel presented through and by, not that there's anything wrong with this necessarily, but through and by the rich and the beautiful <laughs> um, and the celebrity pastor culture that um, does influence us, whether we're aware of it or not. We may not be in churches that have celebrity pastors, but we're all aware of that culture that surrounds so much of Western Christianity. Um, not to take it not to take it into just the kind of academic philosophical but i'm just interested in this i've been thinking about this for a while ever since i read um michael heiser's book on the unseen realm uh, it, in the old testament he talks about yahweh's territory and the territory of other bales other gods sorry and yahweh's yahweh refuses to stay within his territory but the other gods are quite clear this is my territory and so in the in the old testament Hebrew uh, kind of Near East person's mindset or mentality. They think a lot more in terms of, he was saying, spiritual geography. Um, obviously, with Christ's coming, the whole world is now, you know, the Christians. We're supposed to go into every, every, every place we put our foot becomes the territory of Yahweh and his people. But I just, do you think there has, has been and there is some level of, I don't know, spiritual blessing that we in the west have been the beneficiaries of because of concepts like christendom which obviously we don't go with but is there a sense to which this is a, a part of the world that many people from hundreds of years shed their blood in trying to reach um and to to kind of push out a an animistic paganism perhaps and claim it for christ and his church which is a sort of way of seeing the world that we don't really think like but when you just mentioned then about you know the spiritual terrain among unreached people groups just got me wondering about that and i'd love to hear any reflections you might have on that um yeah i i, I quite like um neva's picture and keller picks it up as well in um center church um of the seasons of uh, kind of Christianity and culture, their relationship have seasons. And in that sense, Christendom was kind of a summer, if you, if you want to use that term, where, you know, there's a lot of Christian influence in the culture and, um, you know, Christians feel more at home in that space because a lot of the things that they value are also valued by the culture. And so there's a, there's a summer, if you like, that there has been in Western Europe, whereas Western Europe now would be moving towards autumn or already in autumn, where that influence has declined. Um, but at the same time, in different parts of the world, there are different seasons in terms of the Christian journey. So, you know, the part of the world where I spend a lot of time, the Eastern Mediterranean, that they had a spring in the early Christian years and then a summer. Um, when that was the center of Christianity and then it's been autumn and even winter there. And by the grace of God, we're sowing for spring again, right? Um, Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda would be summer now in terms of the, the numbers of Christians, the Christian influence in the culture. Um, 
somewhere like China would be spring at the moment or even early summer. Um, and I think so English Christians, instead of trying to get summer back, probably need to be thinking about how do we prepare for winter? Um, and you know, what does it look like to be a minority church in the culture? And what does it look, look like to um, kind of gear ourselves up for resilience and endurance in a, in a more antagonistic season? Um, and so personally, I find that it's not perfect, but I find that kind of model that you're talking about as um, to be quite helpful. Because I think sometimes you find English Christians going, oh, you know, we, we wish we could go back to having the cultural influence that we used to have. And personally, I think that's historically and globally an unrealistic hope. And I don't think that comes from lack of faith. I think in winter, different things happen. The church expresses herself differently. Um, but I think that's, that's the next season. Mm, that's really interesting. Do you, I mean, in, in our prayers for revival, is, there, is that partly what we're longing for, is that the revival would come and push back the seasons? And is that part of a realistic expectation of what revival can do? Or, or maybe that's a question beyond this conversation, just how, how revival impacts the wider culture and whether or not that affects the, the mood of the culture's attitude towards Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, in a sense revivals have done different things and have landed a different season so there have been revivals amongst peoples that have been in winter um i think there's also been revivals amongst people that have been in summer if you like and i think they the cultural outworking of that is different in different contexts um so i i think it's you know i think it's awesome to pray for revival of god's people but i i, I I think the aspiration for England to be a Christian country again um, is, I, I just think the church sometimes shines brighter in the darkness. I think um, Spurgeon said, you know, if you want to show off diamonds, you put them on a back black cloth to, to make the contrast clearer. And some of that is not a bad thing. You know, modernism wasn't good for the church in the last 40, 50 years um, in the West. Maybe, you know, maybe postmodernism will allow the church somehow to show more contrast and shine more brightly. Mm. That's really helpful. Some some great reflections. And you just your the story you gave of the the lady being carried on the shoulders it, it does point to and has in it jesus's knowledge of and love for his people and his willingness to use them do you as you travel and you see different expressions of the church in different cultures and contexts is that something that you think shines through in different stories and different things that you hear that the lord really does love his people even though they may express themselves very differently and there's no necessarily legitimate or valid one expression of how churches are to operate and respond in different seasons. Do you have any reflections, I guess, on things that you've seen about the Lord's feeling towards his people? Yeah, I totally agree. I think the Lord loves his people. Um, I think, <laughs> I think he's, very, I was praying the other day uh, with some guys for, it, for a couple of different nations. And I was reflecting that how much of my prayers 
is God going, that's a great desire, but the way you're expressing it is nonsense. Like, that's not how I'm planning to work in that nation, you know. Um, and, and you know, 20 years ago when I was praying for those nations, I was probably playing, praying quite differently. <laughs> and so I, I think our, our understanding, even of church, right, and of God, it's so small. Um, and so... I think that I think even our ecclesiology is probably we've read the first page of the first book in an enormous heavenly library. Uh, and there's so we're so limited in our understanding and application. But I think God has chosen to work through limited people um, and show his glory through our weakness, you know, treasure in jars of clay. And so I think God loves genuinely. I think God loves the the weakness and the stumbling efforts of his people. Um, and I think he sees his church as beautiful, wherever she is, all over the place. Um, but I don't think that we should correlate that to thinking that we've got it sorted. <laughs> because God's pleasure is never correlated with our sortedness, is it, anyway? But with his, his heart of mercy and his choice to use even fallen people with our fallen paradigms and fallen ways of seeing things. Mm. Well, I think that may be a nice little kind of segue into coming to talk about your your book, your re most recent book, The Bethlehem Story, which is about mission and justice in the margins of the world. I mean, I, I read a fair amount, not as much as you. Gosh, I've seen your, your bibliography at the end of your book. I read a fair amount. So I, I enjoy books. This book refreshed and blessed my socks off like very little else in a long while. There's just so many fascinating, previously to me at least, unheard, unseen insights into scripture, into God's working in the world. It is really, really good. And I really do want to encourage everybody to go and buy it. It will fuel your devotional life. Uh, and one of, the, one of the, just the key repeating themes that comes out is some of what you're just starting to answer there, really. Just God's pleasure in his people but God's desire to work often in unlikely ways in unlikely places through unlikely people um, and so I'd love to kind of dive a little bit into some of the the story and the themes of the book uh, one of the it's called the Bethlehem story um, because you take you take the, the the town city place of Bethlehem and use that as a motif throughout scripture observing where and when and how and why that comes up and the key characters related to Bethlehem and in doing that, is you kind of make the claim that whenever the Bible mentions a place, it's not doing so just to locate it in geography. Um, but all places are attached to ideas and themes. Um, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, whenever that's mentioned, it's not about geography. Um, Jericho, example, Babylon, those are places. But whenever they're mentioned, they don't just they're not just mentioned to kind of cite geography. And you say Bethlehem's similar to that, um, which I hope is a is a fair kind of overview of. Um, what your book's doing in terms of the Bethlehem concept. But um, what I'd love to do is almost kind of begin with the, the first time that Bethlehem's mentioned, um, which is in reference to Rachel's death and how that seems to then just sow so many of the seeds and of themes that get drawn out throughout the rest of the Bible in its, uh, in its story. Is that, is that okay? Is that a helpful overview of your book? Um, is that, yeah, where would you like to go with that? Yeah, I think it's a lovely overview of the book. And yeah, at its most basic concept, I was just taking all the references to Bethlehem and um, 
sort of expounding them through the story of thing. But obviously, as Christians, um, asking the question, how does this point to Christ and why is it important, therefore, that Jesus is born in Bethlehem as the accumulation and summation of all these things that have accrued over the years. And I think, um, you know, Rachel's, Rachel's tomb is still in Bethlehem today. If you went there, right, you could see Bethlehem's tomb. And it's quite hard to get to because the partition wall kind of goes round it, separating it off from Bethlehem uh, onto the Israeli side of the border. Um, but it's still a place where people go of all faiths, actually, Jewish, Muslim and Christian. People from all faiths have always gone to Rachel's tomb to pray and consider her a kind of a kind of a mother in the faith, a kind of a uh, a someone that they pray to about um, fertility problems or if they can't have children or it's that kind of a shrine, right? Rachel's tomb. Um, and in the Bible, we're told, yeah, she died on the, on the road um, right there in the Bethlehem area. And then she was buried on the side of the road. And there's something really, uh, there's something really sad about it because she was Jacob's beloved like favorite wife, you know, her two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, Jacob spends the whole time trying to promote them. Uh, yeah, Joseph and Benjamin, he spent, Jake, Jacob spends the whole time trying to promote those two, doesn't he? That's the whole Joseph story over their half brothers because he loves this wife and the other, the other one had kind of humiliated him on his wedding night by tricking him. So he bears a grudge against her his whole life, really. So he spends the whole time trying to gazump them. Um, and that, so his beloved wife dies there and he's, obviously heartbroken um and she's buried on the side of the road which is like she's never she never goes put in the family tomb with everybody else up in Machpelah she um there's something of like never arriving of sort of dying as a pilgrim as an in-between person uh that really sort of resonates um and so yeah, so that's the first mention of Bethlehem, and it draws out a lot of these kind of themes that are going to go through, go through the story all the way. Mm. And there, there, there are yeah, it shows those themes that then repeat, um, as you mentioned. Well, so one of the one of the key things that that you draw out from that story. So I want to kind of stay with some themes that come from this story that then gets sown because they're beautiful. One of the things that you draw out is the Old Testament's emphasis. And God's, I don't know, commitment to celebrate and honour courageous women in Scripture, and particularly courageous mothers. Um, and so I'd love to get your reflections on how, you know, I, I think when you were talking earlier about as pastors needing to listen to and learn from the experience of um, people who've moved countries and don't feel at home here, I think as, as men as well, the need to listen to and, and learn from God's heart for women and his celebration of the courage of women in scripture because um, there's a few women that, that crop up so could you just talk to us a bit about some of those women and some of the things that god has used their stories to speak to you about yeah i think there's several key women in the genealogy of jesus um who are all associated with bethlehem and so rachel is obviously one of them um but you've also got uh tamar you've also got rahab you've also got ruth um and and all of these actually 
have a really special place in the in the Bible's narrative. Um, for example, I think um, Tamar is an extraordinary character where she's being um, mistreated by men and and powerful men, and yet somehow she is a prophetic voice who confronts Judah. So I think Judah, you know, he's he has um, sold Joseph into slavery. He's on a downward spiral. He's in a place that in Hebrew means um, deception. He's kind of at the lowest of the low and far away from his brothers, far away from the people of God in a really bad place. And Tamar eventually confronts him, stands up to him, makes a man out of him, um, gets him to take responsibility, challenges him as a prophetic voice, turns him around. And as you know, Judah ends up being um, the, the, the chosen leader through whom David will come, through whom Christ will come. And so it's almost like a picture of if, if the story of salvation was just left to men, right, we would, we would easily mess it up and wander off path. And this powerful prophetic woman calls him back uh, onto his path and, and confronts him and challenges him. And I, I do think, and you know, you're a married guy, um, you, you know, you know as well as I do, if it's just left to the male brain or the male impulse, we're so limited in our perspectives, in our skills, in our gifts. And so any church, any movement that only listens to men and not women is only ever getting half the, half the value, half the story. God's wired us to see things differently, to feel things differently. To, and I think it, there's a hugely strong emphasis in this in the Old Testament. And, and in Judaism, in the Jewish tradition, reading some of these stories, there's a strong emphasis of drawing out. And culturally, in, in, in the patriarchal context that a lot of the Old Testament stories were written, these are even more radical than you'd first assume, the voice, the female voice that's there. And so we, we need to listen to the female voice in Scripture because God is speaking through it, uh, just as we need to listen to the female voice in our own ministry context. Yeah, it's helpful. And I see it's, it's, it's a point really re, restating there what you just said that the Old Testament culture that it's written into is a patriarchal one. And so in that context for the Old Testament to, to go to the length that it does to acknowledge, to honour, to listen to um, and to call others to listen to the example of women, you know, to us in the progressive West, it feels like, well, yes, that's entirely appropriate, but it's a radically shocking thing. And it's right there in the early pages of the Bible, um, which is really helpful. There's also the theme of the seed against the serpent, which gets obviously kicks off in Genesis. Um, God's promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush the, the head of the serpent. And so the, the, it seems to me, this is something that I heard Jen Wilkins speak on as well, where she draws out the, this, this theme of woman against serpent and the woman's strength in overpowering evil, um, which isn't just to do with her childbearing, but in other forms as well. Um, talk to us a bit about that, that battle between seed and serpent and woman and how that plays out. Yeah, well, I think you, you, you're referencing Genesis 3.15 and the kind of proto-evangelium, this speaking of the gospel for the first time to Eve, which is actually, you know, it's a prophetic promise given to Satan, isn't it? That <laughs> the seed of the woman will crush your head. Um, and 
and you will bite his heel. And in that, you've got both. You've got this kind of crushing of the head of the serpent by the seed of the woman. But then you've also got, um, you know, the, the venomous snake, if you like, biting the heel and leaving its mark. And so it's, it's authority and victory, but through pain and suffering and through absorption of the venom, if you like. And um, we, we see that all the way through the kind of the leadership stories, particularly associated with Bethlehem, that there's victory, but it's always associated with pain somehow and suffering and like absorption of the, the poison. So it's like, take me and I'll absorb it and let these guys go free. And you see that all the way through um, this family tree, really, as far as Jesus, who ultimately is the seed of the woman. Um, and his victory over Satan is, you know, he's crushing the head, but at the same time, he's being bitten and taking the poison. And so I just think, again, there isn't, there isn't victory without suffering and there isn't um, authority and triumph without also sacrifice. And that is a strongly Christian thing. Uh, and, you know, and then you see it ultimately in, in Revelation, don't you? There's this kind of um, picture of the serpent who seems to have grown into a dragon. <laughs> um, and, and the child that's born and this victory, again, the child is born from the woman in, in the picture in Revelation and, and overcomes the serpent. And so it's an it's a incredibly consistent picture all the way through scripture. Mm. And something you point out in that chapter on Revelation is that the seed is now the church because we are in Christ. Um, that is, again, it's, beautiful. So it's our battle against evil but like you said using the understanding the pattern of god in scripture and how we defeat evil it's not as paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal they're not of this world um so you've got the battle of the serpent and the seed but it's also i think appropriate and you draw this out a lot as well that it, it's through the woman in the sense that women are um physically more vulnerable and weaker than men and therefore what you see in god choosing to use of the two sexes the more vulnerable one he chooses to critique the center the power by using the margin is, is, a, is a comment that you repeat so talk to us a bit again about how that's that theme is played out in different ways throughout scripture that god seems to delight in using the unexpected or the, the you mentioned the child the innocent the weak the vulnerable um to critique because again it's it's not just that he's critiquing men per se but in instances where men epitomize and embody power and strength and worldliness that he uses the vulnerable and the, the weak and the marginalized the shepherd boy that's overlooked the eighth son that no one wanted in the room yeah i think one of the one of the things that scripture does one of its um rhetorical approaches is and it comes from an honor shame world is to offer you two pictures and not to really make a comment on them but but to kind of offer them and go one one of these is honourable and one of these is shameful. Um, and so it's a, a, De Silva calls it the topos of two, if you like, just position two things and hear two contrasting things. And you're supposed to respond to them and go, oh, that one's shameful. I don't want to be like that. And that one's honourable. And scripture does that a lot by presenting you two characters that you just need to compare. Um, and so obviously one example would be David and Saul, where 
you know, Saul is tall and powerful and he's from a rich family. Um, and David is, like you say, shepherd boy, overlooked, eighth born from, from a little village. Um, and so you're supposed to compare them and go, okay, I don't want to be like Saul. I want to be like David. Or, you know, we don't see God in Saul. We see God in David. Um, and I think you have that a lot through the scripture, actually, in a comparison between a male and a female character. So, for example, in the book of Judges, in the in the first bit of the book of Judges, there are two characters who are really developed. And one is Rahab. And one is Achan in Judges chapter seven. And Rahab is everything that Achan isn't. She's completely juxtaposed in. So he's an insider. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's a man. He's wealthy. Um, she's an outsider. She's a prostitute. She's from the the enemies of the people of God. She's a woman, and they. But she shows hospitality by welcoming the people of God in faith, and he shows the opposite, like stinginess. Like he tries to steal. He wants more. He's, um, and so actually they end up swapping places, where Rahab and her whole family are saved and not just included into the people of God, but she marries into the tribe of Judah. Right? She marries. A guy called Salmon and becomes the mother of Boaz and they're the founders if you like of the community in Bethlehem um, and and Akan is and his whole family are put under the the ban the haram the the kind of stoning and destruction preserved for the outsiders of the people of God and so there's a there's a swapping of places that happens between these two a, a juxtaposition uh, where enemy becomes family, but also the insider becomes an outsider. And this is a consistent theme in, in scripture, but also in the teaching of Jesus, where he often, we would often have things like the first shall be last and the last shall be first, or God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in all of it, what you're trying to see is God's making it in our world. There are big people and little people. They're powerful and powerless. They're insiders and outsiders. They're center and margins. There's rich and poor, however you want to see it. And in, God's trying to make a new world through his people. So if you're too big, he wants to make you a bit smaller. And if you're too small, he wants to make you a bit bigger so that we get this kind of new creation um, where the intrinsic value of everyone is honored and expressed. And I think in all of our situations, we do need to think, we need to think about power. We need to think about center and margins. Those that have more voice, those that have less voice. And we need to think about how do we, how do we make those who see themselves as really small or as seen as small, bigger, give them more honor, more microphone, more time, more space, more trust, more love, more energy. Um, and those that have everything, how do we see them actually become a little smaller because the world is not a level playing field as, as we're painfully aware. There's also the, the developing of Bethlehem as, a, as a, an example of that margin against Jerusalem as the city. And contrary to how a lot of us think of cities, uh, even the city of Jerusalem gets associated with uh, a place of comp moral compromise and of um, power and indulgence you again helpfully point out that when David sins against Bathsheba we often use it we often use that to say you know it was wrong but it's because we should have been out at war 
which says, under, you know, it says the time when kings go off to war, David was at home. But you, you drew that out further, actually, to say, but where is he? He's in Jerusalem. The point is that Jerusalem has become a corrupt city of discomfort and indulgence where powerful men are doing whatever they want. And, and so even Jerusalem as a, as a place becomes this place of compromise. And that it's after David's sin against Bathsheba that Jerusalem starts to decline and it's, it becomes more like Egypt and Solomon is likened to Pharaoh uh, in a lot of ways. You, you just seem to see these threads throughout scripture so much. I think to myself, this man, he, did he write the Bible? He knows it so well. He, he seems to have lived it. How have, you, how have you managed to see the Bible through a, a very different lens to how many people uh, in our churches at least read it? You seem to hold it together. It's emphasis on biblical theology. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I say in the introduction, it's, it's a really good question. I think I say in the introduction to the book, there are four perspectives that I'm trying to bring together. And they're all things that I believe about the Bible. Uh, and I think they've all got application, particularly for the way we read or the voices we listen to. And one is that I believe the Bible is a big story and it holds together from beginning to end. And that, that's what we call biblical theology. And um, uh, I think in our kind of circles, a lot more people are thinking that way now. And so it is finding themes and developing them through scripture and seeing how they and understanding that even though we had different authors, intertextuality is OK. So in other words, comparing Genesis with John or whatever, because a, the authors were probably thinking that way, but B, the Holy Spirit, who is the overarching author of the scripture, was thinking that way. And so rather than just zooming in to one verse or zooming into a small section of scripture, trying to zoom out and look at the whole big picture. I think the second thing is the Bible is a Middle Eastern book. It was written in Middle Eastern context and actually interrogating Middle Eastern understandings of the world. So honor and shame being an example um, is a good, you, you can get some, some tools and some appreciation of how, how to spot things in scripture that you might not get from your uh, sort of just purely Western perspective, because it's a Middle Eastern book. I think thirdly, um, it is a global book. And what I mean by that is, I think it was given to us to understand and to read in community with our brothers and sisters from around the world. So in this book, I particularly, because it's about Bethlehem, which is a real place in Palestine, in this book particularly, I talk to lots of Palestinian Christians. So there'll be in the bibliography, lots of books and podcasts and writing and conversations with Palestinian Christians, because it's their town. I don't want to talk about their town without asking them permission you know um and so uh, and so i think if you're talking about the margins then you do that by talking to marginal people if you're talking about suffering then you learn about it by talking to suffering people because they've got a unique perspective on the scripture because the bible's a big book and everyone's perspective adds some richness um so it's a global book and then fourthly i think the bible's about mission and so i, I actually think you misunderstand scripture unless you are asking the missional application questions as well. Like, what are the implications of this for what is God is doing in the world? What are the implications of this for what his church should be doing? What are the implications of this for what I should be doing? Uh, and so it's, it's not just an intellectual exercise, it's an applied missional. The Bible has come out of the Missio Dei and God's desire to make himself known to sinful man. That's why we have the Bible. So it's whole 
essence is missional. So you take those four perspectives. The Bible's a, a, a one big cohesive story orchestrated by the Spirit. The Bible is a Middle Eastern book, and so we have to wrestle with Middle Eastern cultural things. Um, the Bible is a global book, so we have to listen to global voices or we'll never understand it because everyone sees different things according to their situation. And fourthly, the Bible's a missional book. And so unless we're thinking about its application and its life in mission, we will miss it. Well, this might be a good time as well for you to just talk to us a bit about uh, the Unreached Network and maybe even recommending some books, authors or podcasts that people should be engaging with to listen. So yeah, tell us a bit about what your work with the Unreached Network, what that is. Yeah, so one of the things I do is uh, facilitate this network, uh, Unreached Network, you find it online at unreached.network. And uh, really this is primarily across the New Frontiers family, although connecting in other places as well. Uh, it, kind of a collaborative collegiate uh, pooling of wisdom and experience around cross-cultural mission and reaching the unreached. So what you find is in New Frontiers, there is some real wisdom and experience and people that have done the hard yards and lived cross-culturally in tough places for years and years and years and pastors that have sent people well and all the rest of it. Um, but it's all kind of accessible on an ad hoc relational basis. So if you know the right people, you can talk to them and get their stories and get their wisdom. Uh, but if you don't, then people make loads of mistakes in what's cultural sending or they don't train people properly or they don't think about the cultural issues involved or they just go i planted a church in london i can plant a church in budapest and it's like nope you can't because it's different right um and so what we've tried to do is just connect a lot of those voices so that if people are thinking about so whether it's individuals whether it's sending churches or whether it's apostolic spheres thinking about best practice in cross-cultural training and sending for mission. Mm. That's brilliant. I love the mission and the heart behind it. And there's a, there's an internship program you're running as well. Is that right? Tell us about that. Yeah. So it's the second year that we're doing this. Um, this year we've got, uh, so we've just launched this year. We've got a bunch of interns on the full-time internship. So that's like your kind of year out type. Um, so, you know, serve the church for a year but it's got a strongly cross-cultural emphasis. So you could do it in, in the UK, for example, but you, your serving would need to be, um, we're serving refugees in our town or we're gathering this toddler group in this area of people from a minority background. So there has to be a cross-cultural emphasis to the serving placement. Uh, some people do their placements overseas. We've got one family on it this year who are doing three months in India um, as part of their placement um and so we had one guy last year in athens who did the placement the whole year from athens remotely um so th there's a cross-cultural placement piece like serving jesus in the local church um but then there's also training and a lot of the training is around cultural intelligence cross-cultural skills how to share the gospel with people from other backgrounds um and so that's the that's the program people can but then there's also a mini version of the program which is you know people can access some of the training on the side as part of what they're what they're already doing oh that's superb and we'll put all the information to that and your unreached network uh, things in the description to today's episode so people can check that out if they want to 
Um, Andy, just as we draw things to a close, I mean, it's been a, a fascinating conversation. We've gone through lots of, gone all over the place with some inspiring stories, some inspiring theology, insights into God's heart uh, for people and for the margins. Just as we close, is there anything else that's in your heart or mind that you thought, I, I just kind of would love to leave you thinking about this or want to re-emphasise or stress this? I think one of the things I've been thinking about is um, the, one of the pictures of the church and particularly finds its place in Ephesians, all the way through Ephesians, is the church as a body. And, you know, but in, in 1 Corinthians, it's the local church as a body and every member needs to play its part. In Ephesians, it's the global church as a body and every part has a contribution to make. And I, I think it's a really stunning picture because the head is Jesus. The head isn't England or white people or men or, you know, whatever. The head is Jesus. Um, and every part needs to play its part. But more than that, one part can't come to maturity you know the mature man that it talks about in Ephesians 4 um, one part can't come to maturity without all of the parts and so we we, we need each other globally uh, so in a in the 21st century in a post-colonial world in a, an increasingly connected world but a, a world where local identities are really increasingly strong people really care about where they're from and their story and their heritage. And, you know, uh, we have to find ways of need, realizing that we need each other, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm, you could do, say, you could frame that theologically. So if I'm preaching on a passage, it's not just that I think I'm gonna read all my commentaries written by white guys. And then for a sprinkling, I'll read a commentary written by an Asian guy or an African guy, like to add a little flavor. It's actually, I need those insights. Otherwise, I will not understand this passage fully. I'll only understand it in white perspective, and that's not enough. And so it's not just a cosmetic diversity, it's a need. And that's true in, in leadership. So it's not just going oh, we need to add someone from a minority into our leadership team so that we look like we're doing diversity. It's not a representative thing. It's saying we need these perspectives. It's inadequate to only have our perspective. Um, it's insufficient. It's limited. And we need the richness of the global body. I really think that's the kind of approach that we need to be considering in the 21st century. Mm -hmm.